Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on LinkedIn Live. My name is Jessica Groff. I'm the VP of Product at Funnel Leasing and also your host for today. Welcome to Multifamily Unpacked. Today, we are talking about one of my favorite topics, UX will make or break your product decisions and why data should drive your design and development. I'm joined today by two experts on that topic, and I'm excited to tell you a little bit about them. First is Chris Brennan, our Director of Design at Funnel. Since joining, Chris has been a huge part of design maturity and us growing to have a true, what we call, iron triangle. That's where product engineering and design all have a vocal seat at the table, and we strategize what to build and how to tackle our user challenges. Uh, Chris is about as as well-rounded as a leader as you'll find with extensive experience in both product and communication design, as well as user research. So thanks for joining us today, Chris. Our next guest is someone whose work you likely know, even if you didn't realize he was the hands on the keyboard behind it. Andrew Harmon is a senior product designer at Funnel. He's primarily responsible for our CRM and automation products. A few of you watching may have even been interviewed by Andrew, as I think he's the current leader in the clubhouse for most user interviews conducted at Funnel. Andrew has extensive background in design thinking and research, and he has used that experience to lead a lot of our research projects and initiatives at Funnel. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, yeah, I like how you put that, Jess, the hands behind the keyboard. So if you've ever felt an invisible hand guiding you through Funnel, that was that was the spirit of Andrew. That's right. That's right. And if you uh, if you haven't noticed from their backgrounds, we only hire musicians with poor vision to be on the design team because they both have glasses and guitars. All right. With that, let's jump right into it. Uh, today, we wanted to break the discussion into past, present, and future. So we'll touch on some of the things that we've done in the past and how a company or a new product can really go from zero to one. Then we'll dive into some of the initiatives that we're doing today and how we made that jump maturing as a product and design organization ourselves. And then finally, the plans that we have to continue building our research muscles in the future. So we hope you leave here with some actionable insights that you can apply immediately if you're if you're in, in a design or, or research or tech role yourself. And if you don't, work at a tech company, we hope you learn a little bit about why you should care that your vendors do this. And once you understand the process, that allows you to ask the right questions of those vendors and and figure out if there's someone you want to partner with. So let's jump right into it. Chris, let's talk about what Funnel's initial research process was early on. And this is likely the spot that I think a lot of the folks listening today are currently in. Can you talk a little bit about about where we're we're at or where we were? Where we were, yeah, I can I can speak to where we were about two years ago when when I joined Funnel, which I think is a very common story in, in especially enterprise software. We um, and this will be through the lens of our CRM product, our, our core functionality, our, our most you know popular product. We're kind of in that stage of had found product market fit, had kind of gone from zero to one. And when we talk about user research, I think a lot of what we had been focused on was talking to the decision makers, you know, the operations teams, the the people making the buying decisions um, at these companies and making sure that just at the base level, we had their business needs met. It was kind of mouth to ear building exactly what they were asking for to just accomplish what they needed to, to kind of execute on their business strategy. And when I joined to the credit of Funnel's you know, leadership, they recognized that we were going to have to pivot at this point. Funnel was very early to centralization, obviously, and, and, and is kind of at the, the core of everything we're doing. But we realized 
you know, at some point that's not going to be our differentiator. The whole industry will come around to that. Our differentiator is going to have to be in our user experience and how effective product is at helping our users. So making that switch to talking to the end users of the product, the leasing professionals, the people in these centralized offices. So yeah, we're making that switch again from talking to the executive teams, operations teams, and how do we actually talk to these people that are going to be using funnel day in, day out. Perfect. Yeah. And and Chris, I know throughout my career, I've seen many organizations get stuck in those early stages and, and they can never grow out of it. I'm sure you, you've probably seen that as well. What do you think helped Funnel realize we'd outgrown that early research phase and, and that we needed to mature as an organization? Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to get comfortable in, in anything you're doing, right? So you get you build relationships maybe in those stages where you're talking to those folks um, at, at the, the company level and, and you know what they're like, you know how to talk to them, you're friendly with them maybe even. And it can be hard to say like, okay, now we're going to talk to more people and these people are going to most likely have more constructive feedback, right? Because they're the ones that will feel any of the pain of, of some of the things that you were overlooked or you didn't have time to address in these earlier stages. So I think one of the biggest things we noticed was how lagging kind of our indicators had become, right? Like we were hearing complaints from users or feedback from users, but it was too late. It was a month, two months, three months down the line because it was going you know, from a leasing professional to their manager, to an operations team, through to RCX team, and then finally making its way to product. That's just too long, right? Like we can't, we can't react to that quickly enough. We should be knowing about all these things before that point. So we wanted to cut out all these, the, the people in the middle and go directly to these end users and just, just start talking to them. And I think advice for anyone at that stage who's just looking to go, I mean, we talked a lot when we were getting started just about baby steps, do whatever you can. You know, we were in a mode of asking for kind of forgiveness, not permission when it came to, to talking to people, obviously working with our customers to make sure we're on the same page about what was going to happen. But we'll talk to anybody about anything, basically. And I think Andrew can attest to that. He talked to a ton of people and we cast a really wide net. When we start with this kind of discovery research, we're not focused usually on on one specific thing. We want to hear about how funnel can in a lot of ways be a small part of someone's entire day and, and make sure we're taking into to account the context that we are living in, in in that person's life. Yeah, totally. So so let's talk about that next step. Once if somebody out there is watching and or they've realized that they want to want to go ahead and take that next step and kind of follow what we did. Let's talk about what we did at Funnel. You helped Chris, you helped lead the charge internally. I think at many companies you've you've been at Funnel included. So for the, those folks who are trying to take those next steps, it can really seem daunting. How do you know where to start? I mean, I'll give the the classic designer response of it depends. <laughs> I think every company is different. I mentioned we're in, in kind of the enterprise SaaS world. There's people there maybe in the more consumer world where it's a little quicker. You know, you're, you're going to hear from those end users because there's nothing in between as much. But uh, like I said, we we talked about baby steps a lot. It was like, let's just do anything we can. You know, we started with things like customer satisfaction surveys and, and feeding that into our Slack, right? So that everyone in in our company could see feedback come in and something that was good about that. I mean, I think was a good uh, jumping off place for us to launch other research methods was that it gave context to people who were working on these, solving these things. And a lot of times you can get in that builder mode where you're head down working on this stuff. And it can be hard to realize like the context, right? Of, of what you're solving for. So making sure we had this constant flow of feedback coming from users and, and everyone being able to access that and see it and be like, oh, I'm fixing this thing. So this person's going to be you know, excited, I think, in, in a couple of weeks when it, when it goes live. Um, so I would say it's, it's whatever you can do to get started, just start. And it becomes a snowball effect really quickly. We talk about 
research being a, a team sport at Funnel a lot, the more exposure people get to it, the more you do it, the more you want to do it, the more, you know, you kind of get this feeling of how are we operating without doing all of this and it just builds. And, and again, the more people doing it, the more ideas you get. We have a lot of people. I mean, I think this is a, a really common thing at companies, um, finding those folks that are doing user research that may, maybe don't even realize what they're doing would be called user research. That's a lot of times folks in support. Uh, we have like Im- implementation team, people that are on sites that are already talking to these people can leverage them as subject matter experts. Again, some of the, they're some of the first people to help kind of evangelize research throughout the company. So that was a long-winded way of saying I think whatever whatever's going to work in your situation, just start doing it. And then you can always adjust. It's a constant iterative process like like everything else. I like what Jess said at the beginning about, you know, flexing research muscles. And I think in a lot of ways, getting research off the ground is is the hardest part, kind of like exercising. You know, if you, you just start doing it, eventually it becomes a habit. You get better at it. It, it gets easier the more you do it. So it, it is like working out a muscle in that way. You know, I think when you're talking about being relatively early on in a company's design maturity level, like we were a year or two ago, it has pros and cons, right? So on the one hand, you know, more often than not, you're, you're light on resources. There's, there's no dedicated team of, of UX researchers. You're, you're relying on existing product designers to kind of fill that gap. On the other hand, on the upside, you have the benefit of being more scrappy and more agile. You can fly under the radar a little bit and figure some things out while there aren't a ton of expectations yet, right? It's not super established. You can you can get your feet under you. You can figure things out. You can make mistakes. You can improve the process. Making sure you're getting it right before you you start to share that work and, and get that support. I think for us being, being in the latter situation, we we knew we wanted to start somewhat small and build a foundation to kind of get results, help sell the value of, of doing research like this. And like Chris said, I mean, we, starting with the goal, we, we knew we were getting feedback from other channels. We, we had customer satisfaction surveys. We had our CX team. We had client meetings, people that we were relying on and, and channels that we were relying on to get that information. And so we, ha- we did have, we started from, from there. We, we, we knew we had areas of the product that we wanted to target. Yeah, we were able to narrow down and reach out to some specific groups of users based on that information and, and keep the scope pretty limited in order to get a, a quick turnaround on the results. We weren't, we didn't start off with these super lofty goals that were going to take forever to complete and to get results. So we wanted to treat our initial research like a like a sprint rather than a marathon, um, which you know allows us to kind of share those results iterate on the process and gain more support within the organization. Yeah, yeah. You touched on something there that I think is really important which was when y'all kicked off this initiative with us you were really intentional about having a clear goal and what we were trying to accomplish. Andrew, what do you do or what would somebody out there do if they want to do this but they're they're just not sure what their goal is? How do you how do you go about figuring out what you should start with. And Chris touched on this too. I mean, I still think a goal of just, we want to hear what our users think is perfectly viable to get started. Even if you don't have a ton of feedback coming in, I I can guarantee you that if you talk with even just a handful of people, five people, 10 people, you're going to start to to figure out some some things you're doing well and then some things you can improve, right? It's, it is a feedback loop. The research you've, you've done in the past will help inform what you do in the future. It's not like a, a static process. Perfect. Thank you both. So those are some of the things that we've done in the past. Let's talk about the steps that we're taking now to go even further with our, our research. A big part of that is getting buy-in for these types of initiatives and advocating and socializing the value internally. I think we mentioned previously, even just servicing it in Slack was a big part of that. I think it's one of the things that you both have done a really great job of at Funnel. 
What are some of the other ways that you can evangelize these initiatives and, and help others in the organization really understand the value of this UX research? Chris, thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a, a great question and, and something that highlights that uh, once you start doing kind of this work, you will realize how big the storytelling aspect is uh, connected to it. Doing the research, talking to folks is is one thing, but just as important and maybe even more important is how you kind of synthesize and analyze that and turn that into a story that people can understand both internally and externally. So you mentioned the the Slack thing we did. And I think a lot of this, you know, comes down to, again, the exposure of like the people building software to the people using software. How do you remove those barriers in between? We've done a, a lot of different things. I think we're really lucky at Funnel that this is not a, th- a, th- a kind of the case of, you know, return of investment on user research or anything like that. Everyone is, is very supportive and, and bought in there. So, but it can serve as that sometimes if that's your situation. Um, you have to be able to tell that story about like, this is what we learned. This is what we think is happening. And this is how we're going to try to address it and, and tell that in a really kind of human way that makes sense, sense to folks. But for us, I think it, it's more about just growing the practice and making sure that this information gets out there to people. So we're very transparent. We post videos as soon as, you know, as soon as we've done them. Um, Andrew's really good about pulling out clips and highlights everyone's busy, right? So you can't, as you can do with the most detailed notion page or or something like this. And it's a good chance, you know, most people are not going to dig through that. So you got to really kind of make sure you highlight things and, and, and keep high level themes in front of people. I'd I'd love to hear Andrew talk a little bit more about this because he's kind of been the most in the weeds here about not only sharing this stuff, but like how we collect it in the first place. Yeah, in the weeds is right. This this is my life from time to time at, at, at Funnel. I spent, you know, I, I get deep in it for weeks at a time, and, and this is kind of living and breathing doing user research. In terms of selling the value of that, telling that story, we basically want to get, we want to make sure we get as many eyes on it as possible. You know, we we give company wide presentations to make sure that we're making making that that kind of noise, and, and we're not only trying to discuss the results, but but we're, we're trying to make things engaging, get people excited about what we're doing. We have Slack channels, like the whole company is able to see, they're able to see that incoming feedback. And we're using all those mediums to encourage people to attend user interviews, see these things firsthand. And that, that includes people from all areas of the company, not just, not just product and design. I can't really stress enough the importance of selling that value. It, Chris said it's maybe more important. I think I agree with him. You're, you're not if you're not getting that like widespread visibility into the results that you that you've gotten out of your research then you're not really able to to effectively communicate its value and, and all that hard work that you've done has a much smaller impact it definitely helps it helps you as an individual or, or a designer as an individual make better product decisions on the on the individual level but it it stops there it doesn't help the organization mature and make better design decisions as a whole. Totally, yeah. I th- actually, I think one of the things that y'all did a good job of w- bringing to us when we were telling the story about this was that old 80-20 rule, you know, that you always hear about. It really even played out for us. And y'all were able to just use the data to help help us see that our users were spending 80% of their time in 20% of the product and then digging into that 20% to understand what did we need to do there to, to really like uh, make our users' lives better. So I, I thought y'all did a great job of, of surfacing that for us as well. Now, Andrew, we've got the org excited. We've told them all about it. They're pumped. They're pumped. They're like, yes, user research. We're all behind it. So now you're on the ground. You're spending lots of time talking to users. Let's talk about what that looks like at Funnel in practice. You know, uh, talking about that that initial kind of sprint 
that we did that initial project, we had some great results uh, with that initial project. We got a lot of actionable feedback. We made sure uh, people within the organization saw what we were doing. They saw the value in that. So at that point, we wanted to to expand the scope of the research and, and get more ambitious and, and actually like you know run run the marathon and, and not the sprint and take it take it to the next level in terms of design maturity. So we really wanted to establish a process of continuous discovery after that, not a one time research project, but but an ongoing initiative with the with the goal of integrating user feedback uh, into our product decisions as an organization. So. Essentially, we're, we're using user research to help answer the question, what should we build next? And, and to do that, we also wanted to expand the scope of how we were collecting that, that direct user feedback. So we wanted to continue reaching out to users to set up remote interviews like we did initially, but we also wanted to do some ethnographic research, meaning we, we wanted to directly observe users working in their environment. I can tell you firsthand that you're going to learn different things by observing people in real world situations, watching what people actually do in the real world versus what they say they do af after the fact is extremely valuable. Both are great, but you're going to get different information. It's it's important to kind of get both sides of it. You know, we'd rather we'd rather observe uh, or interview five users than survey 100. You know, it's just so much more important to get that that kind of feedback. So it's a great doing ethnographic research in the field is, is a great addition to, to remote user interviews, even if you only do it occasionally. Yeah, I, gosh, if, that, if that's not true, more for multifamily than, than most places. It, uh, you know, I think we've all, all, all three of us, I think have spent a, a decent amount of time on site uh, with our users and, and just the difference in watching them use an application versus, versus watching them use an application while somebody's coming in to request their package, while someone else has a maintenance emergency and uh, somebody else has locked themselves out of their apartment. It, it really changes the dynamic of, of their life and, and the empathy that you can have for for our users when you understand that their full scope of responsibilities and not just how they use your product. Yeah, I think really really uh, important point to call out there that that those different types of of interviews really can bring some different findings out. So let's talk about the, the the data a little bit. How do you how do you gather that data? Those user interviews are incredibly important, but you also supplement that with with lots of data itself. So if you're not speaking to the users, where do you get the rest of the data? Yeah. So in, in here, we're showing you a, a kind of a slide of, of a, this is a presentation we give to the whole company, right? We're, we're, we are transparent about this stuff. So you can see in this slide, you know, we've got number of survey response. We had 800 survey responses here. We had, you know, 271 users contacted, 741 minutes of, of interview recordings, zero people that were mean to me, which is the most important stat, I think, everyone I've talked to has been very lovely, and and, and yeah, I, we're sharing that information out. We're also we're also gathering uh, data, you know, outside of interviews. We're, we're still sending out regular customer satisfaction surveys. You know, they're not like the end all be all of the health of our product. That's not like the main thing that we're using to drive it, but they're very useful to do is to get that supplemental kind of qualitative uh, and and quantitative feedback for, and help guide us on who we should talk to when we reach out for interviews. We also, you know, completely outside of uh, gathering direct feedback, we, we get usage statistics for specific features from tools like, you know, Pendo and, and try to identify areas that we want to focus on. We can see the, the statistics, we can see the usage uh, on certain certain areas of the product. And, and those go hand in hand. Like when you, when you hear something in an interview that somebody says, you know, they mention an, an area of the product that they're having trouble with, it 
puts a pin in that for you. So when you go, you go into Pendo and you say, let me look into this and you, you can kind of dig through the data there and see like, oh, this is kind of confirming what they were talking about. Like maybe a lot of people are having a problem with this. So it's, it's a great, you know, those two things are kind of a great partnership to have. Yeah, they're, they're, they're both amazing indicators. And when they point at the same direction, it's, it's when you can really kind of have uh, some, some interesting findings. Perfect. We've conducted all the research. We've got our data. We've got our user interviews. We've, we've got all this information. Uh, but that's really only half the battle. Andrew, how can, and I'm sure a lot of designers out there feel the pain from, from their product friends. So on behalf of all the product folks, tell us, how can, can we help make sure that the results of the research turn into actual solutions for users? Andrew, I feel like you've done a fantastic job of this in our, in our CRM product. Can you talk about that a little bit? Thank you, Jess. I appreciate that. This, this part's a lot of work. I mean, once you have all the interview data, you, you're sifting through it. You're looking. You're looking for patterns. You're connecting dots, like I just talked about before. You know, you're you're getting clues in, into these things. You're digging into it. So you're connecting those dots. We're highlighting notable points. We're starting to notice patterns emerging across interviews. And once you start to notice those patterns, you can start to define problems. You, you can. You're going to be much more informed about the problem at this stage than than if you never did the research. So you can start to dig in into those problems now that you know what to look for, and that'll help you figure out how widespread they might be, how important it is that you solve it sooner rather than later. So quick example that you're looking at now, we heard over and over in our initial interviews that aspects of our, our messenger were difficult to use in certain situations. Here you can see on a smaller screen with a lot of text entered into the composer section, you're not really able to easily view your messages. It's just too much space being taken up by other elements. So in the after, we, we kind of iterated on validated solutions with users, released an update to the messengers that allowed for a much more usable experience in those situations. You can see here, you've got a lot more room to work with. You can see the messages as you're typing them out on a smaller screen. We have a full screen feature for people who want to focus on longer emails. That's just a really quick, small example, but but it's it's highlights the, the the entire process, right? Like getting that feedback, looking into the data, coming up with solutions, validating those solutions, releasing them. And we've gotten, we've gotten great feedback from people since we've kind of released that into the wild for people to use. Yeah. I mean, in general, having those results means you've got knowledge and data to back you up when, when it's time to actually build something. Uh, in this case, that was true here. You know, you have to, everyone, when you're putting together a roadmap for products that you have for, you know, deciding what do you have, what do you want to build? Th this gives you a lot of ammunition to go into that meeting or those discussions. And if that stuff's not coming up, it's getting deprioritized or whatever. You, you can kind of pound the table a little bit and make some noise. And, and you're not just saying, you know, I think this is important. You, you have something to back that up. You can point to the data. You can point to the people who, who mentioned that and, and the data that you collected as, as justification for, for making those changes and building those, those features. Yeah, you know, that messenger example, I think, is a perfect example of of partnering the quantitative and qualitative data. They're both key here, right? And so y'all used Pendo to show us that our users spend a ton of time in messenger panel. We know that was that 80-20 rule. That was 20% of the application that made up for 80% of our users' time. So that helped us narrow in. And then through the user interviews that Andrew conducted, he was able to pull out the nuances of what those users really needed in order to make their experience in messenger, where they're spending their time more enjoyable and a better experience. And so I think that was a really great example of marrying that quantitative and qualitative data together to, to truly tell that whole story. Awesome. So Chris, Chris, that ta we've talked a lot about what we've done. 
But equally as important is where we're not happy just stopping there. We want to continue growing, continue getting better year over year. We're going to, to dive in more to our design research initiatives. So you've helped us map, map out our next steps in, t- in terms of our design maturity at Funnel. Can you talk a little bit about those? Our next steps now that in the CRM team specifically, we've kind of started to implement a lot of this stuff and operationalize it and, and kind of use, collect and use this feedback day to day. So kind of three things we're working on right now and then the next year are first, I mean, we mentioned team sports. So continuing to increase exposure to everyone on product and engineering and design, especially uh, with end users. So we've got some some OKRs and stuff around uh, how many hours everybody needs to spend either in user interviews or attending or watching videos or watching users just use the product. So we want to kind of increase that. The second thing being kind of the, the uh, quantitative data we mentioned earlier, which c- can be useful mostly in telling the what and then not the why as much. But some things we've found is our most successful customers, there's certain things that do happen that are quantitative that we can track. So we want to define those core events uh, and kind of create less lagging indicators, dashboards, things like that can can show us like, hey, when we onboard someone, if these things are happening, it's more likely they're successful. If they're not, it's less likely and we need to go in and, and kind of have a conversation. And the third being broadening the scope of, of what we consider kind of like design solutions at, at all. Um, in enterprise software, we're dealing with a lot of service design. The, the relationship between us and, you know, our our enterprise customers, our, the relationship between us and the end users, the relationship between our customers and their employees and end users is, is very complex. And there's a lot of different types of solutions that can solve those issues that arise that aren't always new things in the UI. So starting to broaden uh, what we consider design solutions and again, making it more of a, of a team sport. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Love that. Well, we are nearly at the end of our time today, but the last thing that I want to leave anyone watching with is if there's resources uh, that you folks would recommend for anyone wanting to lean in and learn more about this topic. The one I always kind of recommend to folks, especially who are just getting started uh, with, with user research is Erica Hall's Just Enough Research. It's a great, short, punchy primer in, in, in conducting all kinds of user research. So highly recommend that one. Yeah, that's a great one. But I also recommend that one. That was a good read. I've got the the user experience team of one was a book I read a, a while back. And it's still definitely, I feel like, very relevant today, especially for people who you might just be trying to, to get this off the ground yourself. You might be on a, even a small, it doesn't, you don't have to be one person. It could just be anybody kind of starting out getting this kind of stuff off the ground at your organization. It's great because it kind of gives you the the philosophical stuff behind you know, use research, but also gives you very practical advice, like what to do in practice. Really well written and pretty essential read for people starting out. Awesome. Well, thank you both for all of the info today. And on behalf of myself, Andrew, Chris, and everyone at Funnel, thank you for watching and spending some of your time with us today. We hope you learned a few things you can take back with you. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Multifamily Unpacked. If you enjoyed what you heard here, leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and follow Funnel on LinkedIn.